Welcome to Conversations. I'm Enrique Cerna. Talking about race is difficult. When we do, I often find that it's from a perspective of being Black, Latino, Asian, or Native American. But what about the white perspective? What is their responsibility in this conversation? What is it like to be white in America today? And in asking that question, what role should white people play in talking about race and our racial divisions? We take up those questions and much more with Dr. Robin D'Angelo, lecturer, diversity trainer, and the author of What Does It Mean to Be White? Developing White Racial Literacy. Welcome to Conversations. Good to have you Thank you so much, Enrique. Let's talk about a term that you have come up with that sort of really kick-started your writing and lecturing and Mm -hmm. um, much of the work you do as a diversity trainer, and that is white fragility. What is that? Um, it's a very common response, a fairly predictable set of kind of pattern responses when you try to engage the average white person in a conversation about race. And uh, particularly when you challenge our racial positions, our racial worldviews, our perspectives and opinions, we don't tend to respond very well. You may have noticed this. Yes, <laughs> um, <not>. There's, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of defensiveness. There's a lot of insult and umbrage bridge and um, withdrawal and argument, and generally the conversation breaks down. It isn't just talking about race. If if you try to talk to white folks about race in a way that allows them to just assert their opinions and perspectives unchallenged, that tends to go pretty well. But if you push back on it, uh, we tend to respond really poorly. It, it's as if we lack the capacity to really hold that, that the discomfort of being challenged racially. And it's so predictable and so patterned. And I, I saw it so consistently in my work trying to talk to white people uh, about race and racism and trying to guide them in uh, self-reflection about that very question, what does it mean to be white? And it looked like a form of fragility, right? And and fragility is not weak. I think that it's weak in the sense of the difficulty to hold the discomfort, um, but it ends up um, functioning to block the challenge, right, to stop the conversation. You know, the classic Uncle, Uncle Bob says something at the dinner table and everybody's uncomfortable, but they all go silent. Nobody, why? Because it's not going to go well. Our experience is over and over is if you challenge Uncle Bob, or, you know, ourselves, each other, uh, we're going to get defensive and and uh, the whole thing's going to, you know, come to a screeching halt. Right. So it's actually quite powerful um, in its um, effectiveness. It really does block the conversation, protect our worldviews, and allow us to continue on uh, without really understanding. Or doing anything about it. Exactly. Well, I, I want to... Um uh, tell you about a situation I was in. Uh, I moderated a, a town hall conversation. It's been about what uh, almost two years now. Uh, it included Michael uh, Marco Mara, who is the uh, attorney or was the attorney who represented George Zimmerman in the controversy of shooting death of Trayvon Martin. And uh, when I opened up the conversation, I started with him and I asked, "Why is it so difficult to, for white people to talk about race?" And his take on it was that they don't have to. (laughs) And that's why when Mm -hmm. you put it, say, let's talk about race, the cringe. 
Yeah. I think there are several threads. And of course, we we haven't had to. So we haven't built the capacity to kind of hold that that discomfort. Um, it's arguably the most charged, sensitive, uh, dynamic since the beginning of this country, right? So there's a very, very deep history behind race relations. Um, and not only have we not had to, but we live in a culture that uh, really holds uh, the idea of individualism quite uh, sacred, right? So we have this deep sense of ourselves as unique individuals outside of the forces of culture, outside of socialization. And so if you suggest that you can know anything about me just based on my race, that's going to challenge uh, a deep sense of my identity. I think that the most brilliant adaptation of racism post-civil rights is, you know, prior to civil rights movement, you could pretty openly come out as a white person and proclaim, yes, we are better, we deserve what we have because we are, you know, fundamentally superior people, right? This is the great joke of Archie Bunker, right? You know, his younger, you know, uh, children were saying, ah, you can't say that anymore, Dad. Uh, so post-civil rights, to be, to be a good moral person and to be complicit with racism became mutually exclusive. You couldn't be a good moral person if you were complicit with racism. Um, and also, we tend to define racism as conscious dislike, right? So a racist doesn't like people of color, or doesn't like somebody based on their race, absolutely knows it, uh, and intends to be mean and hurtful. So if you suggest I've done anything racist, you basically have just said that I'm for racism, I meant to hurt people, and of course that is a, that is a character insult to me. And so I'm going to now need to defend my character. And I'm sure you've seen this pattern. It, and it, it functioned beautifully, actually, to protect uh, the kind of dominant framework, right? It made it virtually impossible to talk to white people about the inevitable blind spots and assumptions and patterns that we have across race by virtue of living in the society we live in. The one thing that I find, and, I, and this is a, a, a pet peeve with me mm -hmm. or something that just irritates the heck out of me, Sometimes in talking to someone that is white and we talk about issues of race and they say, well, I'm not a racist. <laughs> and, and and I'm sorry, but my, right away I think that if you have to say that, then mm -hmm. I think maybe you have some tendency to be that way. And I'm hoping all the white people listening right now just heard you say that, right? It's not convincing, right? So much of what we say, our claims, uh, what we provide as evidence that we are not racist is so problematic. It's so un unexamined, and it just isn't convincing. What you're probably thinking is, uh-oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm probably interacting with someone who doesn't have a lot of self-awareness. It's not possible to avoid absorbing these messages, right? I do, I, and I also find that I get angry about it. Yeah, and, and then that you give the person, well, see there, you're too sensitive, right? I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. this, ah, maddening catch Oh, you make too much out of it. There you go. Yeah. I mean, another classic one is I was taught to treat everyone the same, right? I think that's probably the number one white racial narrative, you know. Uh, I was taught to treat everyone the same. And in, when I'm giving a presentation, I'll say, okay, everybody ready? No, you weren't. <laughs> uh, not a single person in this room, not a single person listening today uh, was taught to treat everyone the same because it's not actually humanly possible. You can be told to do that, and I'm sure they, you know, we were all lectured to do that in the same way we're lectured that it's not nice to judge. 
can any of us not judge? Um, so when someone says to me, I was taught to treat everyone the same, the bubble over my head is, oh, doesn't understand basic socialization doesn't understand culture and is not particularly self-aware because uh, it, it, there is no human objectivity, right? We, we make meaning of the world through the cultural framework we were socialized to make meaning of it through, and it's, a, it's infused with biases and assumptions and this kind of thing. Okay, so here's another one okay. <laughs> while I'm on a roll here, uh, and that is that I often find, and uh, this has happened with many of my white friends, when I bring up an issue related to race, they change the subject. <laughs> or they say, or, and I have had them say, you're making too much out of that. Yeah, it kind of goes into this void of silence. This happens in organizations, too. You know, you're at a, you're at a table where a decision's going to be made that is going to affect many people's lives. Those people are not at the table making those decisions. Somebody says, hey, I'm noticing that we're almost all white here and we don't really have any other perspective. Uh, and then silence, right? And it just disappears. Uh, and then they carry on. And so it, it's a very effective way to end the conversation. Um, you know, I mean, the oh, impact yeah. is how invalidating it yeah. is. But it again, it, it it protects my my position, my worldview, and uh, doesn't require me to engage in something that's uncomfortable and is probably going to challenge me in some way, right? Okay, let's talk about you mm. and how you got into this business, this work. Uh, obviously, you have an academic background. You uh, got your PhD at the University of Washington. Um and your focus really was in kind of whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and then you took another step as you started doing uh, diversity work. Uh, what, I guess, what was the aha for you in, as you started doing the, this type of thing? Yeah. Uh, and, and trying to get people to understand. And are most of the people that you work with when you give these trainings, are they white? Yes, because the majority of, the organiza of organizations... Are white. Are white. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, the majority of decision makers are white. Um, I actually, it, it was actually the other order, and I came from practice to theory, right? I'm not somebody who, you know, went straight away to college and then went out and looked for a job. Um, I actually grew up uh, poor and working class. I didn't go to college until uh, later in life. Um, and when I did graduate, I got this position as a diversity trainer. You know, if somebody told me about this job, it sounded so cool, right? You're going to go into the workplace and you're going to talk to people about acceptance and things. And, oh, I'm so qualified for that. I mean, I'm a vegetarian. And, you know, I just had this really simplistic, I'm liberal, I'm open-minded, I'm qualified. And it was the most profound learning curve of my entire life. Awesome. And the very first thing was we had to go through a five-day train the trainer. And it was a very racially mixed group of people that were being hired to go out and do this diversity training for this organization. And for the first time in my life, my racial worldview was being challenged in a sustained, consistent way by a fair number of people of color. And part of being white is that I could be a full adult with a college degree and never in my life had my worldview racial 
racially been challenged. I wouldn't have even been able to tell you I had a racial worldview. You know, I'm just a person. I'm just a human, right? And so I was like a fish being taken out of water. It was very intense. And then we went out into the field and we were in uh, rooms filled primarily with white people who were so angry and hostile and so upset that they had to have this conversation. And you know, I had I related to it, right? I had enough of my own experience and uh, patterns uh, uh, growing up in this culture to recognize it, but I had enough of being kind of taken out of the water and seeing an alternative perspective that I could begin to kind of stand back and say, "What's happening here? What is going on?" How do we pull this off? It's such a separate and unequal society, so much segregation, these rooms filled with almost only white people, and this insistence that now there's reverse discrimination and white people don't have an opportunity anymore. And over time, because it's so predictable and patterned, the sociologist in me kind of said, okay, what, you know, what are we doing? And then I got better and better at speaking back to it. I, I do want to add that I, I, because I grew up poor, um, I had a very deep sense of shame and otherness uh, growing up. Um, and I could have told you all about it, right? And, and I'm female, and I could just tell you all the ways that I have not had advantage, but I had never looked at how I, you know, where in my life did I have advantage? Um, and where might I have been actually benefiting from the oppression of somebody else? And so having that to draw from, but realizing, wait a minute, you're actually participating in someone else's experience of, of pain that you recognize, right, from uh, early on. And that's not acceptable to me. Uh, so that helped motivate me. And so a lot of white folks will identify an aspect of their life where they have experienced a lack of opportunity or privilege. Uh, perhaps they're LGBT, perhaps they're, they're uh, female, or they're working class or poor, or they have a disability. And they'll use that to say, therefore, I couldn't have privilege. Um, and of course, you know, these things are, these barriers we faced are real, but there's this other barrier that is huge that we have never faced. And white privilege has it really en enables us to kind of move through those other barriers. Is it difficulty getting white people to understand uh, white Is that privilege? a rhetorical question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. It's, it, it is amazing. Yes, there's an incredible resistance to acknowledging that that we have advantage by virtue of nothing we've done um, and that it is not something that we need to be conscious of and it's not something that we can or can't choose, that the society is set up in a way to benefit us. Uh, and that pushes up against uh, not just individualism but meritocracy. Well, who, you know, who doesn't want to feel like what they have they earned? But yes, I have worked hard and being white has... Um, Help me in uh, profound ways. And? <laughs> and? Say more. Well, I mean, helped you in profound ways, but then have... I, I think that what I see is the challenge is, is many times getting people to understand that there is privilege. Yeah, I'll give you an example connected to what I was just talking about and see, see if it's useful. So because I grew up poor and working class, came to college late, now I'm an academic, and you know, then I'm sitting at those tables with other faculty members. We're discussing, it's almost always white, um, we're discussing an issue. It's really clear to me that there's some really racially problematic 
dynamics going on and how we're discussing it. Let's say it's a hire, and we have a white person and a person of color, and we begin to talk about how the white person is a better fit. <laughs> but we're not really interrogating why do we see, you know, what are the racial kind of dynamics that would cause us to see this person as a better fit over this person? And I want to say something about it. But I feel intimidated because, you know, I'm late to academia and, you know, they're all, they've all been there, you know, their whole lives and they went to private schools and, right. So it's truly a feeling of internalized inferiority that's causing me to be silent, right? I'm not feeling superior in that moment. I'm feeling inferior. But when I stepped out of myself and asked, yes, but how's it functioning in this room right now? I realized, oh my goodness, it's functioning to protect the racism going on in this decision. It's functioning to, to position me as a team player, uh, basically to maintain white solidarity. Um, I'm going to get ahead by not speaking up about racism. And that's, that's when I went, oh my goodness, that's not acceptable to me. I'm not going to sit here and benefit uh, from, from my race. That's not okay. I want to use it because this is another privilege of white people, I'm not seen as biased when I name racism the way you would be seen as biased. Um, and I realized, and what a great way to push through this uh, basically lie that I'm not as smart as these people because I grew up poor. That's actually not true. And so when I speak up, I'm simultaneously pushing through my own inferiority, but using my privileged position to challenge uh, an inequity that I benefit from. So I, I just see it as a really exciting, powerful uh, way to, to grow and deepen uh, self-awareness, to in enhance cross-racial relationships. I wish white people understood how transformative it is to just start with the premise, of course you've been thoroughly conditioned into a racist worldview and in, in investments in racism because that's the water we're swimming in. So let's just let, let that go. Let's stop denying that and from there um, struggle to see where we're participating so we can stop doing it. So what is the responsibility then of someone who is white I think it's with I, issues of race. I think it's a, a complete responsibility. Um, I don't feel guilty about about being white. I want to be really clear about this. It's not about guilt. I don't, I don't, it's not about good or bad. It's just this is the society I was born in, and the default of this society is the reproduction of racial inequality. It does it fantastically well. It's been doing it for hundreds of years. I think we all know that despite these narratives of, you know, being again, you know, open-mindedness and colorblindness, we still have racial disparity across every institution, right? So obviously the society is continuing to reproduce racial inequality. Um, and so to not intentionally seek to interrupt that is to support it. You know, uh, Howard Zinn has the... the uh, analogy of you can't be neutral on a moving train. Uh, and so I think the responsibility is 100%. Um, you know, you open by talking about uh, generally when we think about race, we think about asking you, you know, what's yeah. it like, right? right. Um, and for as long as we've been doing that, people of color have been saying, well, actually, why don't you look at yourselves, right? Uh, it's, is it possible that you might be our problem? Uh, and certainly there's a relationship here. Um, I do think that uh, the way race has been set up in this country, it, it is a white problem, um, and if white people don't get involved in addressing it, we can only support and maintain it. 
We live in this time right now that's pretty toxic, and uh, especially coming off an election that was extremely toxic. Yes. And the issues of, you know, race and how people talk, <laughs> and particularly with uh, President-elect Trump, because we call him President-elect right now as we speak, um, you know, I think he uh, opened the door for people that, that are white that say, hey, he said all that stuff, and now I feel comfortable saying all that, too. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an incredible opportunity uh, to, see, to see how um, ever-present racism is, it, it, the eruption of it, right? It, it is no longer implicit. Uh, it was very explicit in your face, and I think it, it there was almost a glee in finally, you know, getting to say what we think and feel for white people, right? That post civil rights, it didn't become socially acceptable anymore. It doesn't mean you know. There's lots of research that shows that behind closed doors, white people still say some pretty egregious things and share some really problematic perspectives that we that we know better to say uh, not to say in public and this uh, but what apparently there was a lot of resentment about that right a lot of resentment about not being free to say feel and do whatever we want with no accountability or consequences uh, there's a deep sense of entitlement that was uh, bruised I think by um, maybe what what people use despairingly and say p political correctness. I actually don't have an issue with political correctness. Um, you're free to say whatever you want to say, and you're also going to have to hear my response to it, right? <laughs> um, so, yes, it took the lid off, uh, and it erupted. And we could call it a form of white fragility. That just It just was unbearable not to have complete entitlement to um, f openly feel and express white superiority. And I think I think the candidate <laughs> tapped into it, um, and and gave permission back. So, how do you deal with that now? Oof. And particularly in the work that you do. Yeah, it's it, you know it's a very very challenging time. In some ways, it puts it on the table and lets you get your hands on it. Um, I find it maddening that still people won't admit that there was race. I don't you know racism and in the, all of the discourse that went on. Um, I think there's two things that, are, that I would want to highlight. One is keep, keep in mind, again, that good-bad binary I talked about mm -hmm. and how um, we've just got to get rid of this idea that racists are bad and not racists are good, and if we're good, we, we couldn't possibly be racist. And I think um, particularly for white progressives, um, this it's a very tempting time to just reinforce that binary. You know, it, it's Trump supporters who are the bad whites and we are the good whites. And that's just not useful because, like a lot of things we've been talking about, we always have to ask ourselves, how does it function? Well, it functions to distance me. Uh, who have I left them for, then for them to do harm? Uh, and it functions to basically say, well, not me, and so I don't need to do anything else. So we, want, we need to be really careful. What's my role in this? Where have I colluded? Where have I maintained silence? Uh, where have I backed away and not taken the kinds of risks uh, that I need to take? Um, sometimes what I'll tell uh, white people who ask me, well, how do I talk to my you know, brother-in-law who's so conservative? And, you know, there's not like a here, here. 
there are some techniques that would cause more or less defensiveness, but it's, it's not an easy answer to that. We're talking about complex human interactions. But I guide them in letting, let go of whether your brother-in-law changes his mind. It's really healthy for you to break silence, right? For you to speak up, um, to not go home and lay in bed that night and say, I didn't say anything. You know, um, I'm part of the problem. You need to break with that. I've used the term a couple times, white solidarity. I just want to give a quick definition. It's the unspoken agreement amongst whites that will keep each other comfortable around our racism and not really, you know, call each other in. And that's why we go silent when Uncle Bob says that. Uh, we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Uh, it's problematic. Um because again, it, it, it serves to support us. So, so maybe those two key things, don't separate yourself from other white people at, at this time. Um, and recognize that silence is a form of support. And when I think about it like that, it makes it much harder for me to be silent. And, and then it gives me the courage. It takes courage to break with white solidarity. Is it even more important right now to have these conversations? than uh, maybe we've had in the past or not have had in the past few well, years? Well, I, I, can, I, I can't think of any a social dilemma that we, we think the best answer is to never talk about it, right? So um, absolutely, more than ever, we have to talk about this and we have to get it on the table and it's not going to be easy and it's not going to go well, but I cannot see in any way how not talking about it could ever challenge it. When you do your workshops... Um, in the end, I guess, uh, what are you hoping that people walk away from that? Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, that's a great question. Um, oftentimes, I have about three hours, and to, to somebody who has to go to the workshop, that might seem like a really long time. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very short for me. So what I hope to accomplish in a typical three-hour session is no matter where you are on this, you come away going, oh, my goodness, I, I didn't know what I didn't know, right? I didn't realize that I couldn't see that. I'm very unsettled by it, um, and I'm also very motivated to keep getting more information, right? I want to break with that apathy, that certitude, that lack of humility that so many white people have about their per opinions on this topic, um, and leave, you know, have people leave uh, the session uh feeling incredibly motivated to keep going. It, I, I use the analogy if I went to the doctor and he said, you have an acoustic neuroma, and then he got suddenly, notice I said he. <laughs> <laughs> and then they got called out on an emergency <laughs> and, and left the room just having said to me, you have an acoustic neuroma. What would I do? What would you do? Well, you'd go home and get on that Google, wouldn't you? Yeah, you right. Because you are motivated and you care. I want to know what that means. For That's answer, right. Yeah. And what are all the different opinions and what are the options and what are my, you know, uh, the range of interventions for me? There's so much incredible information out there right now on what to do. Laid out so simply, you know, 10 steps, 10 things white folks can do. So um, I want them to leave actually motivated and caring enough to go and find out. Uh, it's out there. But they won't get there if they can't. And I, I feel I really need to reinforce this for your listeners. We've got to break with this idea that racism is only intentional, aware, meanness and that if we don't have that we are good to go right i want them to go away understanding the power of an of implicit bias 
um, and that it's driving their reactions and their responses, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, and hopefully moving past that good, bad, either or and into it is inevitable that I have unaware uh, racist patterns as a result of growing up in this culture, and I actually want to see them. I will say thank you to you, Enrique, if you point them out to me so that I can stop, you know, acting on them. So let me ask you, um, how often have you given white people feedback on our inevitable and often unaware racist patterns and assumptions, and had that go well for you? It depends on the... um I, it kind of depends on the situation. Um, I, I think I, I have to admit that I think the times I have uh, uh, not said things because I've gotten angry, mm-hmm. and uh, which uh, and then I internalize it, and then I'm later yeah. thinking like, why did I not say something? Um, but then there are other times, and it depends, I think, on the individual and what they're saying and how they're saying it, that I would step up and say. Uh, you know, you're wrong. Yeah. Or I, or let's let me give you my side of this and some understanding. Yeah. Um, I think personally, I think that in, in talking about race for people of color, we're, we're probably more willing to talk about it because it's our experience mm-hmm. that we have every day, and or have had more often. Uh, I uh, and then I I but I, I do feel troubled a lot that I think that that I'll, there are many white people that don't want to talk about it and so they they just try to avoid it yeah and I find that very disturbing so it's kind of a mixed answer I give you but it's sort of the situation and uh, well I see I want white people to to recognize that every moment of our life is also racialized that white space is racialized space that every moment I spend in um, an, a white environment, I'm being reinforced in many things, a limited worldview, a lack of understanding other people's experiences, um, a lack of loss about uh, the absence of people of color in my life, right? That, that white space, when I go to dinner tonight in Ballard <laughs> and everybody in the restaurant is white like me, that's not an unracialized environment, right? right? Um, well, that's an everyday experience for me. Yes, right. It it not carrying the psychic uh, weight or burden of race uh, for me is also a racial experience. You know, starting to be able to see that um, and think about, well, how's that shape me? Because then I think that leads into white fragility, right? That we're so rarely ever out of our racial comfort zone that we think racial comfort is something we're entitled to and that something is wrong if we become uncomfortable and then we attack the source of the discomfort rather than using it as a really key door into more self-knowledge. Um, something you said about, I mean, when you when you were explaining your answer, you know, there's a lot of agonizing over, you know, can I, can I not, will I be heard? You know, people of color don't live as long as white people overall. And uh, most of it is stress-related, right? That, that, that's, uh, you know, those are minutes off your life, agonizing. That's very true. And it's probably come from an experience that uh, you're taking a big risk. The, you know, you don't know how it's going to go, and so is it worth it? I want white folks to, get, to change so that that's not a risk, that actually our relationship will probably go deeper and, and we will build trust if you let me know that I just stepped in it. I think our worst fear is, oh, I'm going to step in it, and then you're going to think I'm a racist, and then you're going to stop talking to me. And it's like, I, 
I've had lots of friends of color say, if we gave up on white people every time they <laughs> showed their you know, racist ideas and worldviews, we'd be really isolated. We're not going to give up on you. What we're looking for is repair. Where, where will you go with me? Can we talk about it? Right. Do, do you care to know the impact you just had, whether it was intentional or not? Do you care to know? Do you care to address and change whatever it was that caused you to, to respond that way to, yeah. to the person of color? Um, and, and actually, you could have a deeper relationship. Yeah. You bring up the health issue, and I actually think that racism is a public health issue. Yeah. Because uh, I, you drive um, on I-5 outside of Seattle, and if you're driving north to south, and there have been studies that have pro already proven this, that, yeah. you know, the, uh, the health of people tends to decline, particularly they tend to be people of color yeah. as you drive more south wow. in, that, in that respect. Um, and, and I think the other thing is that I, I'd like to see some, um, uh, which I find what you do is very interesting because uh, I think that uh, there, there really is an important, um, we need to find some reconciliation mm. right now, mm -hmm. you know, because we, we seem to be so split. Yeah. And so uh, that that's the understanding that I'd like to see us uh, try to have if we can do that, if that yeah. makes any sense. Oh, no, it makes sense. So, I, I, and I wonder if we can get there from the current dominant paradigm, right? This good, bad, this sense of individualism, yeah. you know, that I, I think we have to transform the way we understand what that means. Yeah. Um, and until we do, we're going to see these kinds of breakdowns. Well, I, I do think that in this, and I sort of, how come I've, you're the interview subject oh, here. So? We kind of lost it here. Uh, <laughs> but I do think that uh, there is opportunity here in this time of where, where there has been a very toxic situation. We still are going through it nationally, that there's opportunity for us to have some uh, conversations that I think really be, are, are important. Yeah, and it won't come from just being nice. Right. So here's a message I want to give to white people. Um, just be nice and carry on and you will support racial inequity because niceness is not courageous. Niceness will not get racism on the table. Niceness will not keep it on the table. In many ways, anti-racism will be seen as not nice. Right. Um, so my, my point isn't uh be mean, but right. this kind of deep idea that as long as I'm friendly and nice and there's fond regard across race, there's nothing else happening. And as we can see, that has not ended racial inequity. We have to be intentional and strategic and take risks, but also educate ourselves about what racism means. If we keep reducing it to just individual acts of intentionality rather than the deeply embedded uh, systemic uh, system that it is, we're not going to be able to understand it and change. Dr. Robin D'Angelo, author of What Does It Mean to Be White? Developing White Racial Literacy. Dr. D'Angelo, thank you very much for being the guest here today. Oh, you're so welcome. It was, it was a lovely experience. Thanks. All right. We'll talk more later. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.